welcome to this podcast from Adelaide Place Baptist Church. We are a community of disciples, apprentices of Jesus, who live and work in the city of Glasgow, and it's our vision to join God in the renewal of all things. Our discipleship to Jesus is for all of our lives, so as well as listening to this podcast, we'd love for you to join us on a Sunday morning, or get involved in one of our missional communities, which are across the city throughout the week. Our prayer is that you encounter Jesus in some way through this podcast. More information can be found at apbc.net. We've made it to uh, the end of our series on the book of Revelation. We've got to the end of this series, which is maybe miraculous in and of itself. And I hope we can now say that we can read Revelation responsibly. Not perfectly, perhaps, of course, maybe never perfectly, but when we began, we were saying how it has tended to be one of those books where it's been functionally decanonized. We we don't know what to do with it, so we at best ignore or just stick to the easy bits, which we've not. We've Since this journey has begun, we've realized since affirming its hybrid genre, so it's, uh, for the final time, an apocalyptic, prophetic, circular letter, we have just had a sense of how we we actually read it. And we realize as well that it, it speaks to a whole range of issues. It's been spoken about the person of Christ from that early vision of the Son of Man, his character, his deity, his victory on the cross. It informs and it inspires the church's worship as it fills us with imagery about who Jesus is. As well as that, we've seen how it, call, it takes a very serious view of the church. It calls for the faithful witness of the church. It has called the church to be involved in a prophetic community who, who listen to the words of Jesus as it speaks to them. They discern what the living Lord is saying to them. They discern what it means to be a disciple and how to be faithful to Jesus and be obedient to him. The church is called to be alert to the specific compromises that they are tempted towards in their given context. It's also been speaking to us about evil and empire. So it's opened our eyes to think of structural evil. It's alerted us as well to thinking about how we can play our part in that by believing lies which play to disordered desires and, and actually creates unjust systems in our world. And it's as well that it has alerted us to the cosmic spiritual realities and battles. It's warned us of, at times of God's judgment and his sovereignty over our lives and over the nations. And as well as that, throughout, it has assured the believer of the victory of the way of the lamb over the pride of the beast of the way of Babylon, of the might of Rome in their day. And as we recap on that, we also have a sense of how to read that, not just what it speaks about, but how to read it. Prophecy in the book of Revelation is not just fortune telling, but involves our agency and our response and our listening. And we've learned to see some of the, the main symbols, though there's no test just now, of revelation and what they, they actually speak to concrete realities like empire, like leaders, like corrupt leaders that goes on cycle and loop and we see it repeated time and time again. And we've learned implicitly then not to 
major on minors. There's many things like the eighth barrel that we're not gonna really understand anymore by the end of today, and that's okay. We don't get like rabbits down a, a war and, then just, or, and just get lost in it. We learn to actually see the big things and, and, and see that and allow the things that just need to maybe just pass us by for this moment. This book we've seen is about Jesus Christ. In fact, it's not telling us much new about Jesus Christ, but through imagery is helping us to become more alert and awake to who Jesus is as he reigns today. And now to finish, we come in these last chapters, of course, at the close of the scriptures and of this book towards an invitation to envisage the final hope as we have it in our Bibles. Sometimes hope-filled words are those that just trip off our tongue so easily. Things are gonna, we say things like, things are gonna be fine, it'll, it'll work itself out, you know, there's always hope. And most of the time that, that's true and most of the time that's fine, but a lot of the time we don't need a, a thorough examination on the topic of hope. Life is simple, life is all before us. What's not to love about life? And then, of course, seasons of disorientation come along, be it like a brutal plow that just comes all of a sudden and disrupts ground that was otherwise happy and settled before this came along, or be it in seasons where it's like wave after wave of just these times where it's just one thing after the next, and we're like, I, I can't take any more. Or sometimes, it's a disruption in a gradual sense of just the gradual attritional force of things like the stress of work or financial stresses and strains of life that just wear us to the ground. And I think we need to remind ourselves that that, that happens and therefore we should talk about these final things because as human beings, we do need hope. We desperately need hope. We struggle without it. Two of my lockdown favorite TV programs, which I'll confess to you just now, um, were, and they're not, I'll give you the caveat, don't judge me, don't, they're not Christian, they're not putting a Christian worldview at all. But on, on this theme, one was called The Good Place, and the other was Ricky Gervais's Afterlife. And I absolutely love both for different reasons. The Good Place is this comedy series about these three people who end up in the good place, and they realize that they're not actually meant to be there. They're meant to go to, down to the bad place. And the, the whole series is, is, is trying to make sense of the resolution around these three people who ended up in the good place uh, in, through the pearly gates. And it's got, it's got deep philosophy wound throughout the series. It's got some deep thoughts, but it's also ridiculous and very funny. And then Ricky Gervais's afterlife, just in case, last time I checked, he wasn't a Christian uh, by his own admission. Um, but... It is a wonderful portrayal of, in, his, in this story in Afterlife, it's all about him struggling to live after the death of his wife um, through cancer. And it's a really powerful telling as deep humor in it too, dark humor in it. But you really get the sense of reality to what it is like to live in light of that, in the wake of that. And there's some real raw moments where things that we tend to go to TV to push away from it actually invites us just to go like, well, this is life and this is right before us. And it's for those reasons, I find programs like that actually helpful, not their, their worldview, their 
pushing, but just the fact that they, they will want to talk about things that we can maybe try to push away. Death and decay happen every single day of our life. And in the good seasons, we can tend to push it out of sight. But there are moments when we're not able to, and we suddenly become aware of it. And even, even down at a practical level, where there was something going on a month or so ago with one of my good friends, and um, when you're aware of these things, you notice the things. I noticed as I was walking to the park, two horses that went past in, in, in a particular moment. And most of the time, these things just happen. Some of us may be involved in our work that makes us see it a lot more, but these things just happen every day. And so we need to face into that. And it is quite common to speak of the old cliche or dualism of like the good place, of going up or going down when you die, up to the good place and down to the bad place. And, and sometimes our liturgy can sometimes be a little misleading as well and doesn't exactly help the matters. I, I do have a slight tendency for one to destroy your love of your favorite hymns. Here goes another go at that. Um, when Christ shall come with shout of acclamation and take me home, what joy shall fill my heart? Now, there could be a good way to hear that and we'll come to that. Or as a way in a manger praise, the, the hopeful part of a way in a manger, just to ruin that one for you, and fit us for heaven to live with thee there. Again, there's probably a good way to hear that and maybe an unhelpful way. But what if hope moves in the opposite direction to how it is most commonly referred? A lot of this hope talk is, is, is fine and good, but what if it's just not how hope is described in the Bible that we might hold so dearly? And what if Christianity is not so much about where you go or what happens to you post-mortem? And what if hope isn't so much about anything about going up, but much more about the other direction, about heaven coming down? What does that do, or what does that mean for our, our sense, our understanding of the Christian life? What does that do for a sense of what the, the mission of God's people is, the church that he has given us? And of course, what does that do if, the, if this direction is true for our deep and very human need for hope? And, you know, it, it, it's a biggie. So I thought, do you know what? I'll do it. I'll throw the grenades out there and I'll run off into the sunset on sabbatical for three months and somebody else can just pick up the pieces. So... Uh, forgive me for that, but this, this will be a modest attempt to try and just to, to lean into that uncomfortable space. And I have been praying for those this week who maybe are right in the middle of something like this right now, where it's not just academic. And as well as praying for the doubting Thomases, which is topical this time of Easter, among all of us that presents where we're just like, I just don't know what I believe sometimes. And I've been praying for us as we're in that. And you, you do not need to hear what I'm about to say is, you know, some people have got this all wrong and you just need to be put straight by me. But maybe more just like, you know, like, like a, a good sound engineer does. It's all about balance, right? Sometimes you can't hear something because the treble's up too high or the bass is too overpowering in the, the middle. You know, it, it's about balance. It's about some things are just too screaming loud and need to be put down a bit and other things need turned up so that we can hear with clarity, what this living hope is all about and what we have. 
We can't say all, and I'm not going to try to, but I do want us to be ambitious this morning about living well in light of this direction of hope, heaven coming down. The Bible begins with a garden on the pages of Genesis, and it comes to its climax in the last couple of chapters that we heard read from Revelation with another garden, except this time a garden city lit up with the glory of God. So where, where, where can some of this imbalance set in or confusion set in? And I think the answer is, is, is to do with some of the ways though not entirely, but some of the ways that Revelation has been read when it comes to the parts on eschatology. Now, you don't need to worry about that word. It just means the study of the end times. And one of the specific scenarios Revelation brings up is the period of a thousand years, the millennium, mentioned in chapters 20, one through to four. And this has been interpreted in, uh, in a number of ways, some of which I would argue have the tendency to be quite problematic. The first way, and I'll give you a term that is a technical term, and you can do what you want with it, is premillennialism. Now, the pre is about before. It speaks of Christ. It's a vision of the end times where the belief is that Christ returns before the period of a thousand years that is outlined in chapter 20. Uh, it takes the thousand years is quite literal and chronological. So premillennialism is Christ returning before the period of this thousand years. As things deteriorate in the world, Christ saves the elect and come and leaves the rest for a thousand years and it just gets worse and worse and worse. It's the sort of worldview of hell in the handbasket is all kicking off and the world gradually gets darker and there's time for those left behind if you've got around in that era, I wasn't, I don't really know much about it, but there's apparently a series about it. The left behind get a chance to, to make good, otherwise it just gets darker and darker. That's, in a very dog rough way, the, the pre-millennialist view, interpretation of this. There's also a, a post-millennialism, a post-millennial view, where Christ returns after the thousand years, that's referred to in chapter 20. They would also, in this view, take the thousand years to be less literal and metaphorical for a time period, the end times, rather than a strictly chronological. But differently to um, this view and another view that I'll come to in a second, the post-millennials have a really optimistic view of this time, that actually with this effective witness of the church, it's going to lead to a golden age, a wonderful age where most just turn and, and come to a saving knowledge. And it's, it's really quite an optimistic, triumphant view of what is going to happen in this world. And that's the, the so if you want to discern a post-millennialist, they start quite optimistic about everything because it's all going to be fine, this golden age. It's less popular in recent decades, probably because things haven't been so great in the 20th century with wars and decline and really hard to hold on to this sort of golden age view, I think you could make a pretty strong case that particularly the pre-millennial view, the idea that Christ returns before this literal time, things get darker and darker, has led many to have quite a negative theology or view of this world. And especially if we add into the mix 
ill-defined notions of heaven, specifically as that word heaven is used in the Bible. There's a couple of words that is generally most commonly used for heaven in the Bible, which I don't need to bore you with just now, but it's good to have an awareness that when it's used, sometimes the word heaven is used as a synonym for God or God's reign. So Matthew's gospel is a really clear example. It talks about the kingdom of heaven. And what it's talking about is God's reign, God's personhood and his reign. And other times, you could point to a lot of this in the Old Testament where the heavens are referred to, or the heaven. It's talking about this space in their worldview of this up in the sky, this air. And it's just a way of talking about the sky and that, that which is above. And it's, it's describing a sort of a, a, a visceral place that we, we see, we look up to the heavens, the sky. And it also talks in a way about a literal way of, of God's domain, God, where God's presence is, where his throne is, where, he, where his presence is uninterrupted. But it's good to have that awareness that there's that interchange. And so we don't just see one word and, and then import and attach all these uh, specific meanings to it, when actually it, there's a range of ways it is used in the Bible, Old Testament, and New. But somehow, for some of those reasons, and probably more, and if you wanted a more detailed account of, of, of the nuances in this, a really good book, book I'd point you to is Surprised by Hope by uh, Tom Wright for a more detailed account. But, but somehow, for some or many, but not all, Christian hope became about the hope of somewhere you go when you die. And often, crudely or uncritically, sounding like the good go up and the bad go down. Now, hell, well, hell is, for an, is for another day. I'm not going to dive in. Well, hopefully not for me. But, you know, like, it's, well, it, but it suffers from the similar fate of the word of heaven. You know, we, we assume what we think it means and then just read that into every time it's mentioned. And there's a whole range of things. And I, I, I think... I would think it's good to have a literal view of heaven and hell, but I'm also aware that one's literal view is literally different to another person's view and different again to how the Bible lays it out. And I, I, I view these things seriously in real realities, but I personally don't hold to eternal conscious torment. I think it's just good to know there's a range of views out there and it's not all about Dante's uh, inferno-style hell of literal fire and fury. But that aside, all is culminates in a problem where, and the best word I can use to describe it is escape. Escape is a good summary of where a lot of this, particularly that premillennial, that this, this world is going down the drain and we just need rescued away. Take me home, take me away to where I belong. And it's just a language of pure escape away from. And scholars would call this if you want to be technical, a form of Gnosticism, which is kind of like this thought, heresy that kind of just keeps manifesting over in different ways. It, it speaks of like the divine spark in us. Salvation in Gnostic worldview is about illumination of thought so that the, the eternal spirit goes to be with God. And spirit, good, body, bad. It doesn't deal in, in the categories the Bible lays out. And so if you apply this sort of escapist, mindset of hope to the Christian life, well, it's less about incarnation and embodied living and more about avoidance of contamination and the elevation of the, the eternal soul, body, bad, spirit, good, 
And it's about the eternal soul that needs to be connected, the spirit within that needs to be connected with God. Mission then is about saving this spark and this soul to reconnect it just with God. Very little said about anything else. It's just this, this soul that needs to be put right with God, full stop. When it comes to Christian hope, it's more like a delete and escape and, and completely start again. Nothing like redemption. What about actual justice for these nations that we know? It's more like a, a just a complete reboot. And I say all that not to drag you through endless debates just to have a bit of fun, you know, before you go off on sabbatical. But to say there are very real differences out there which really inform how we travel, how we process, how we process some of our darkest times. Differences too that just need to be noted in today's global world among the major religions from Hinduism, Buddhism, humanism to Islam. These are not all the same paths. They're the world of reincarnation of Hinduism or Buddhism to this place of like non-state or, or nothingness and from humanism to, I don't know, an annihilation and just living on in people's memories to, to Islam to a very different view of paradise. These, these things are, they, they're not just all just takes us to the same place. Well, they, they don't. They just, logically, they just can't. They're, they describe very different realities. Now, on a, on a pastoral note, I've, I've talked about this a, a, a number of times with different people, usually over food, because it's probably the better place to talk about this. This is not to say that there is nothing positive to say about what happens when you die or what happens when a loved one dies. I would want to make a very straightforward point that it seems very reasonable to make the case person faith goes they go to be with Jesus and that with Jesus state could be explored in a number of different ways which is important outside of time held in the memory of God union inseparable in the presence of Jesus where we have this theology of the communion of saints there's a lot to be said about that but the point I would want to make from the book of Revelation is to make it, yes, these truths are there to comfort and they are a deep comfort in our darkest times, but they are simply not the great hope, the great hope in the Bible itself. It's not the great climax in the book of Revelation. The living hope, if you like, is, is bigger than that. It's bigger than that. Another way to think of the thousand year reign, just to get into another term that's mentioned in, in Revelation is to understand it as a depiction of the end times in general. In other words, as the times in between the first coming of Jesus into this world and his second coming. So it's not a literal period, it's that period. In other words, we're in it, like now. Like these are the end times in between the first and the second coming of Jesus. And put in a really, another dog rough sketch, it's similar to post-millennialism in that Christ returns after the thousand years. And again, similar in the sense that this period of a thousand years is, is less uh, chronological and literal and specific in that sense. However, a, the, the term is amillennialism. And it's different from 
post-millennialism in the sense that under this view, there's no golden age of progress and victory. No great, and it's much more, and this is maybe suits my personality, it's much more like some good, some bad, some progress, some setbacks, some victory and some bad, you know, it's a bit more of a, a realistic, uh, I would say, mixed bag of things that you can expect in these end times. And it's a way of reading Revelation as less than, um, I was going to say hell-bent, that's the wrong word, less, less bent on predicting what's going to happen. Um, and, and this would be an amillennial sort of view. It's important in this view that, that knowing that we fight, but we fight a limited foe, it talks about the, 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 this time, this age, there's a, a sense of evil it is prevalent and there's an awareness of that. And within this view, talk of the now and the not yet, which you might have heard that phrase for of God's kingdom, is vitally, vitally important. That this hope is breaking in to today, to now, it's here. Christ has risen, he sent his spirit. This new project, this new era is here, but it's not complete. It's far from complete. And holding that tension is vitally important. One of the, I came across this recently, I just never thought about it. I don't know why I never thought of this before, but it's from a liberation uh, theologian from uh, Latin America. And his critique of a, a, of a view of God's kingdom as entirely not yet, so all future and, and no, none of it breaking in now was like, yeah, that's, that's essentially you're saying, yeah, that's all very well for the, the white rich person whose life right now is fine and says to the material poor, don't worry, finally one day you'll all be fine and sorted, but just, so just put up with it. And he was like, under a hermeneutic of suspicion, was like, I see a power play in that view of hope. And he says, no, 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 the kingdom is both now and not yet. If it's just not yet, I don't believe you because there needs to be a congruence and a continuity so that these people are not taken advantage of. I never thought of that before, but it's a view in the kingdom, of the kingdom of God in amillennialism of the importance of this tension that the kingdom is now and not yet. So what is our hope then? What is it? And according to Revelation, it is in the great event of the return of Jesus. And all views, we're happy to know, are agreed on that, however it happens. So it's the great event of the return of Jesus and the final descent of a heavenly city renewing the heaven and earth unity. It's in the unity restored, an Edenic unity of heaven and earth for those who worship the creator, redeemer the one who will renew the unity of heaven and earth, not destroy it according to his promise, not scrap the whole thing and start all over. And of course, our hope then in this Easter is in the resurrection of Jesus, that through being united with Jesus by faith, we get to share in the resurrection life. Bodily, bodily resurrection following where Christ has already been. And this, this is our path as we follow the way of the lamb into this new creation story. And it's illustrated in various beautiful and powerful ways. Um, the book of Revelation is drawn heavily, I don't have time to go into it just now, on Isaiah 54, Isaiah 60, Isaiah 65 to 66, Ezekiel 40 to 48. Really beautifully way, if you read those passages in parallel and just see this sense of according to the promise, he is making good and building this new 
creation. One of the ways Revelation describes this new heaven and new earth is through a, a, a litany of removals. And these negations do not depict a negative vision, but as Michael Gorman, a New Testament theologian says, rather they stand for the removal of all that prevents human flourishing in community before God. So the, removal, so the boundary between heaven and earth is permanently removed. There's, there's no temple, which is a, a novelty to the vision of the New Jerusalem, no temple. No, the temple was the place of God's presence. And no temple, no need, because God is there with his people. There is no boundary between heaven and earth that's been removed. And instead, we have a perpetual, perceptible presence of God on this earth. No seas in Revelation 21, verse 1. The seas stood for chaos. And order has been brought about in this garden city. Verse 4, we have no death. In verse 4 of 21, we also have no tears, no mourning, no crying. No need for the sun or moon meant to emphasize the glory of God's light and the eradication of darkness. No closed gates. There's nothing to fear. And Revelation 2 makes a bunch of contrasts and replacements that start to really fill out our vision of final things, of ultimate hope, which each have rich theological meaning and implications. And the main contrast, of course, is against the city of Babylon, which for them stood for Rome and the empire of empire. So the contrast of the city of Babylon versus the glorious urban garden city that descends. A culture of the beast is replaced by a culture of the lamb. The beast, with all, remember all the autocratic rule of oppression and, and bullying, is displaced with a familiar refrain that you'll have heard an echo in the Old Testament we heard in our reading from Revelation. Look, God's dwelling place is now among the people and he'll dwell with them. They will be his people and God himself will be, will be them and be their God. It's not a, a, a top-down dictatorship, but a, a dwelling with much of a contrast. It's also a culture of death is replaced by a culture of life. A culture of fear is replaced by a culture of peace and trust. A judgment, of course, will be delivered as we heard in chapter 27 through 15. It'll be, a verdict will be delivered on evil and on human culpability and only those united in faith to Jesus are delivered. But the judgment is not arbitrary, but instead the removal of all that is an assault against our humanity and against our God. And we have streets of gold and there we have it, this, this image of the tree of life. We're beginning from end. This, this, this vision of, of an ordered life around the will of God is brought bookended together. So this is not about escape. This has not been a great escape plan, but this is about fulfillment. And we find in verse two um, of chapter 21, I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God. And this is repeated in verse 10, this, this vision of the new Jerusalem, of heaven coming down to earth. Because this is the final answer to the Lord's prayer on earth as it is in heaven. It's not a regression back to the Garden of Eden 
because that would imply all modern developments of civilization and culture are wrong in and of themselves. But that's not what, that's what, not what happens here. It is not the problem with all culture that was wrong in civilization. No, it was the evil and corruption which distorted it. But the movement is forward towards the new garden city. So in other words, all of this progress, so for many of you um, creators and developers, there's plenty of work still to do. The vision was never just to go back to some sort of thing. The vision was always to, to build a culture that glorifies God, to use our hands, to use this material world, to glorify our God and to have that union with him. So you, creatives, developers, I, I was trying to think of all the jobs that are still going to be required and, and the ones that weren't and the people, the cardiologists are going to need to retrain and all of that. So I, I don't know, divide a list of what jobs continue, what don't, but you get the sense this is not a regression back into something prehistoric. This is a development of civilization, of culture into being everything that it can be and should be to glorify God. It's the removal of everything that prevents human flourishing with God. I think we'll still need engineers. Um, it's, also, it's also about healing. The healing of the nations with Ezekiel's river and leaves of healing are an incredible contrast in this narrative to Babylon's wine, which made the nations drunk. Here we have this water which gives life and these trees, leaves, which bring healing, true healing. And these are words of hope that can be applied and spoken at funerals, the hope of reconciliation with loved ones, the hope of things being put back the way they should have been. But equally, the healing goes way further to incorporate the healing of the nations huge vision of everything that has been developed so far coming to a place where healing is a reality in all of its facets with God, with each other, with the brokenness that we've experienced. Now, if we apply that hope to the church's mission, what would that look like? If we get a vision of that end game, that, that goal, how does that vision then start to impact the contours of our mission, our life, and our sense of hope? You might think when it comes to mission, it's one of those topics that we all agree on, that we all should be about mission. But I think that's probably where the agreement begins and ends. Because as, as soon as you start to define what mission actually is, we, we start to get in all sorts of problems. There's a missiologist guy who studies mission, who's um, from... Uh, a number of decades ago, David Bosch, he's sadly passed away, but he is an evangelical, so he had a high view of scripture, among other things, and he is also an ecumenical, which meant he had a passion for all the great streams of the church. And he, he wrestled a lot with mission since the paradigm shifts in his times, he noted since the Enlightenment and the pluralistic global world we now live in, he realized the world is a very different place and we're asking very different questions when it comes to the mission and how we conceive of it. And he was caught up in this sort of tired discussion of oscillating between people saying it's between the, or this 
tension between word and deed. In the world where people just wanted to do social justice and other people are like, no, 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 it's just about proclamation and evangelism. And he's like, no, it's social justice, it's reconciliation, it's peacemaking. And like, it's about evangelism, forgiveness of sins and atonement. And he was just like, he was, he was just in this world of just trying to say, can, 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 can these things please hold together? And I, I love, he, he, I came across this recently. He, he said uh, regarding this sort of, tension and battle, it was like playing chess and checkers on the same board with everyone claiming to be playing by the rules. And it's this sense of just competing ideas, competing visions, and he um, landed with a lot of emphasis on the church being a sign and foretaste, drawing in Romans 8, 23, the church being the first fruits of the spirit, and was a massive advocate of of that if we think about the end goal of what God has for us, then we are witnesses that we are a sign that points towards and a foretaste, a little foretaste of that. Now, if you think about mission in that context, you can see what he's doing. He's bringing these two things together, saying, church, can we grow up and have a fluency between word and deed? Because we're called as disciples of Jesus to do both because they're in separately together. And there's something whenever you get the end in sight that just sharpens our thinking on that. So that we, the vertical and the horizontal, our vertical relationship with God and with each other is important. Disciples who embody the kingdom, who seek to practice the ways of peace, justice, reconciliation, earth care, and evangelism. These things will challenge different people in different ways, but it's that fluency that we go after. It gives hope for our lives, the very fabric of the things we spend a lot of our time doing, because it's not escape. It gives hope to our work, that nothing done with the work of our hands, the hours and hours we spend is futile in the scheme of God, apart from the people who need to retrain in the new kingdom, the new earth. Ultimately, it's a vision in an end, which is, it's a vision that in the end is just a beginning. And it's a vision of healing and human flourishing with God. And it ends with a really radical invitation to live in light of this hope. It's an invitation, it goes in two different directions. One is us inviting God. Twice the invitation in the last section is the spirit leading the bride to say, come, come Lord Jesus. Double invitation to the Lord to come. Come Lord Jesus, just longing for him. And there's a promise, he says, I, I, I am coming. I am coming. And then also we have this invitation for us to simply come and partake in this. Let the one who is thirsty come. Let the one who wishes take the free gift of life of the water, free gift of the water of life. Come. Come and receive. It's not come and morally perfect your life to get in on this. No, no, you can't. It's about what Jesus has done. This whole vision of this book is about what Jesus has accomplished. It says, will you come and drink of it? Will you come and receive it? Will you come and taste now the healing of his presence and his power in our life as a sign and fortress of what he wants to do for all eternity? Come, all who are thirsty. It's such a radical thing. And it leads us to think about our roles, carriers of, carriers of this hope, communities where this newness has already begun, bursting in as a sign pointing to a glorious future and a foretaste where we pray, come, Lord Jesus. 
and be found for the next three months saying, come Holy Spirit, come Holy Spirit and come Lord Jesus and have your way among us because you are living hope. You are worthy of putting the foundation of our lives through the good times and through the darkest, most brutal times because he is our hope. He is our only hope. Let's take a moment to pray. Father, we were singing earlier about being child of weakness. And Lord, how we feel that at times. We're so aware of our inability to control things. We are out of control of so many different things. And it's only some moments we glimpse that, Lord, and we need a foundation for our lives. Help us to choose you, the one who offers living water without cost, lavishly. Help us to experience your healing and your presence here among us, even today, Lord. Help us to be bold carriers of hope in this season, Lord. We help us to long and hunger for you and show us your face again, God, we pray. Reveal more of your love Lord, become often weak as your children. Lord, show us again as your fatherly love, the warmth of your presence, the healing of your presence. Bring it, Lord, we pray. Amen. We are going to worship, continue in our worship. We've been worshiping as we've been listening to the word of God. Um, and I want to invite you to take advantage of the people who'd love to pray with you. Uh, I'd... Th- we can't get away from this conviction that sometimes we don't ask a lot, particularly in the healing front. And I wonder if there's grace in this room for healing of hearts, mental um, ill health. I wonder if there's healing for physical pain and symptoms. And the image in my head is that classic one of Jesus um, and having the roof falling through and people laying their friend before Jesus and just saying, can you, can you do something? <laughs> can you do something? Because sometimes it gets really complicated. Sometimes we feel like, maybe I need to feel like full of faith to get some night healing. Well, that's a bit bold. I don't feel comfortable talking about that sometimes. But there's something just about coming and saying, God, just bringing this for Jesus. And people to my left, um, will be available throughout this worship time and after just to say, look, hey, we believe God works. We believe he's a healer. We know it's imperfect and, and, and there's a not yet, but let's come and say, God, what do you want to do? We bring ourselves for Jesus. Don't leave without getting the chance to do that for a physical thing or an emotional thing or, or a mental health thing. Please take the chance to do that as we worship. Let's stand. Let's worship God together.